Good evening, and welcome back to Geeking with Destination Venus. A um, couple of things before we get started. Throughout this edition, you may hear the sound of a nail gun, and you may hear birdsong. In fact, you'll definitely hear birdsong. Um, there's a reason for that. It's because it's really hot in my attic, which is where I record this, and so I've got the window open. And the birds won't shut up, and there's a dude putting a fence up at the end of my garden. So um, that sound is carrying, and I'm pretty sure that the mic is picking it up. And uh, the reason for that is because I've started using my professional mic again. Uh, the, the last few months, uh, what with one thing and another, uh, I've, I've just been using the laptop mic, which didn't pick up on stuff like that. And now I've got a really good mic. It is. So... It was better when I was using the rubbish equipment. I don't know why I spent money on an expensive mic. Yeah. Anyway, uh, we have got uh, the first part of an interview for you this week with local Harrogate comics writer Ed Whiting, who has just put out his first sort of this is my book complete thing. Uh, more about that in the interview. Um, before we get started with that, though, I do just want to mention uh, the very sad passing of um, Dave Evans. You won't have heard of him unless you were very much into the UK small press scene, but Dave was an absolute stalwart of the UK small press self-published comics scene. Um, he was the solid base upon which a lot of it's been built. There's an awful lot of people putting their own stuff out there now that wouldn't be doing it if it wasn't for Dave's assistance and advice. I didn't know the man very well. I didn't know the man very well. I didn't know him at all. Uh, I had met him several times um, at conventions and whatnot, uh, and I found him to be a very generous, very enthusiastic man who absolutely loved comics, loved that people were making them. Um, he was a great editor. He was a really good editor, a great editor, um, as evidenced by the number of comics that he edited and the quality thereof. Uh, and he was very incisive in the advice he gave to a lot of independent comics creators at the start of their career. Um, I'm going to say no more than that. Um, Ed knew him much better than I did. And um, we do talk about Dave uh, in the interview, so I'll leave the, the real memorialising to somebody who knew and loved him much better than me. Um, the condolences of Destination Venus and everyone at Geeking goes out to uh, Dave's family and friends. I, I said last week that it's uh, a measure of the person when you see just the massive outpouring of grief and love uh, on the, the announcement of something like this. Um, Dave was very well loved in the comics community. Uh, he leaves a massive legacy and he will very much be missed. Uh, so uh, with that, um, I'd like to dedicate this edition of Geeking to Dave Evans. Um, and I'd like to introduce you to one of his, not one of his protégés, but certainly somebody who is writing comics, at least in part because of Dave's influence. 
this is our interview with um, Harrogate's Ed Whiting. Yeah, but I mean, I've used it as the last year more or less. I've just more or less been catching up on stuff that I haven't read or watched in years. One of the great delights of the first lockdown was uh, because somehow I had energy and time in the first lockdown. Um, yeah. I, don't know where, I don't know where either of those things went, but they seem to have de- deserted me now. But I did a, a daily waffle every day. Yeah. And part of the part of that was here's a free thing you can find online that'd be quite entertaining where you're not allowed out and my god there's some good stuff on youtube the whole the whole of blake seven all of it you know something is on youtube all of it it is and i just only discovered why was i looking i've never i've never actually seen blake seven um i see you're younger than me it's um i mean i i've I literally was looking about Blake Seven for us in reference to something I was, the story I was thinking of. Mm-hmm. So I googled it, and it was something was it like nineteen seventy nine to eighty one or something? Seventy nine like to eighty one. Three seasons. The third season's not as good. And and I, so I googled on YouTube, and I thought, oh, it is all. It's all on there. It's all on there. And I thought, oh, I've never actually watched Blake Seven, so now I just need to find a good chunk of time to it's it's well well worth watching. I mean I was how old was I? I was like eight um yeah. when it started and ten when it finished I think. And it was it ever, was it ever repeated? I don't think it was. I really don't think it was. I don't remember it being repeated. I think I only heard of it probably. I used to read SFX magazine, mm. so it would be brought. You know, the guys in there would bring it up, and I, um, old J. Michael Stratins, can't pronounce his name now. Stratinsky. Just call him JMS. It's easier. JMS. He said it, he always said it was one of the big influences on Babylon Five. Well, I hadn't read that. I can see that. I can see that. Um, I think Seven had better dialogue. I'm not even sure if it was available on DVD or video. And if it was, I just, you know, it's one of those things that bypassed me. And so, mm. I, you know, I really could watch it, even though it's, you know, what, 40 years old now, or over 40 years old. Yeah, over 40 years oh, old. That doesn't yeah. bother me, but... It's good. It's the, the first season is very... And again, you're younger than me. This might not mean anything to you. Uh, the first season was very much a, sci- a science fiction play for today. Oh yeah, I know a play for today. It was very, <laughs> it was very serious and very worthy and quite lefty. Yeah. Um, the second season was a little bit more, little bit more influenced by Star Wars, and yeah. they, they they brought in a big bad, and the the Federation became much more of a kind of an, an evil empire yeah and then the third season i'm assuming the cocaine hit because the third season the third season is very is very different but the the wonderful thing about blake seven that amused me even as a child my, 
my mum, when I was a kid, used to listen to Terry Wogan in the morning on Radio 2 because yeah. it was the late 70s and there was nothing else on. Um, yeah, but so he's still free channel, man. He used to he used to take the piss out of out of Blake Seven all the time because from about halfway through season one, there weren't seven of them and there was nobody called Blake. Yeah. And it's like that's, the sort of that's the sort of thing that yeah, they used to take the piss out of. It's not wasn't the seventh character the ship. Yes. Um it was yeah, the, well Zen was the computer on the ship. Right. Okay. Um and then the liber the, the the original the original ship was the Liberator, which was an alien craft. The the, the original idea was that the, the original crew were prisoners on a prison ship. Yeah. Being taken to what was essentially a hell world. And they came across this alien ship drifting. And they sent some prisoners over to check it out because they were expendable. But while they were there, the prisoners managed to get the ship working and use it to escape. Right, yeah. And so they took, so they took, and they called it the Liberator, and they they had this computer called Zen. And at the end of season two, the Liberator was destroyed by the Federation, and they escaped and hooked up with another guy who had another ship called the Scorpio. Um, right, and that didn't work very well, but it had better special effects than Star Trek Generations. I mean, it's hard to imagine the BBC having two science fiction shows on now. I mean, because it ran at the same time as Doctor Who, didn't it? And it, it was, yeah. Um, and at the time and, when both Doctor Who and Blake Seven both ran midweek, yeah, they were they were prime. You can't really imagine that today. No, it's sort of prime science fiction in prime time weekday television. Because so every ten years, the BBC have a thing where they try to do some other science fiction. Because I have seen Star Cops, and that was the late eighties. Oh, I loved Star. Also on YouTube, I have to say, it is, and that's when I watched. I watched. This, I did actually watch that last year on YouTube. After like, I loved Star Cops, and it was Star Cops is one of those things. It was. Almost right. So much of what's in Star Cops is is what happened. Yeah, just not quite right. They 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 missed the internet. I think every that's one of the things that nearly every science fiction writer seems to have missed. Yeah, so yeah, anybody before sort of nineteen ninety one, yeah, seems to have missed the internet completely. Which is weird. You know, you thought oh, some sort of global communication system would have been. One of the first things that, again, that's, that's uh, I mean, I think it was on BBC Two, Star Cops. It was. I mean, I it's a very them... BBC Two show, isn't it? It's, it's, yeah, it's... you can't really, you can't really see them doing that, though. I mean, I think the last thing the BBC did that I can remember was, uh, was it Outcasts with Liam Cunningham and, uh, I don't think I saw that. It had um, can't remember his name now. Guy out from what do you call it? Battlestar Galactica. He was Jamie Bamber, is it? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. 
in the first episode and then the spoilers, the BBC thing of you know having a big name guest star and then killing him off. Mm. And then it kind of it just I remember following that online and everyone was really hyped for it and then it it was badly written and conceived and it just you could tell they gave up on it. The BBC just like dumped all the last episodes on a Sunday night. But they do that. I mean, there was Orphan Black as well. Which I didn't see that. Have you not seen Orphan Black? No. Oh mate, have you got Netflix? I have got Netflix. Yeah. It's on Netflix. Watch Orphan Black. It's the amazing. But again, the BBC. It was a BBC America production, and right. they put it out. It was it was the early days of BBC Three, when BBC Three was still a thing. Yeah. And they put it out on BBC Three, and it really got an audience. And then somehow the BBC just sort of lost interest, and they showed they showed the first three series, and then just abandoned it. And it pitched up on Netflix as a Netflix original. It's so good. It's it's really honestly, it's absolutely. Yeah. I've seen CBC do that with all science fiction, fantasy, horror. I think they have a very sniffy not just the bbc i think britain tends to have a very sniffy attitude towards those genres i think that's fair i mean there was an article in the guardian um yesterday the day before yesterday it was i forget which columnist it was one of their regular columnists zoe is it thompson tomlinson yeah sort of saying you know, all i can get my kids you know my kids won't read um you know they'll, they'll only read manga and that doesn't count because it's pictures yes um, and and there is that that actually genre stuff, science fiction. It's just not respect. I mean, even Tolkien. He was a bloody Oxford Don for Christ's sake. I mean, you can't get more intellectual than that. No, um, like Clark. Mm. Or... Yeah, yeah. The the guy who who came up with the concept of the communication satellite. But his stuff it... is just dismissed. Terry Pratchett, for Christ's sake. Yeah. Or, you know, Neil I mean, Gaiman. I, yeah. Yeah, just, just writers who have such vision and such insight. I mean, if you want to, yeah, if you want to look into literature that examines the, the human condition, Pratchett and Gaiman is where you want to go. But people don't because no. it's fantasy. Um, well, I don't know. What do you do? Ian Banks used to say that people would read his, well, he says, proper fiction and wouldn't read any of his science fiction at all. He had people, you know, they'd come up to him and, you know, devout fans of his mainstream fiction, but wouldn't read any of the culture books. Well, and you get it with, you, you do get it with writers as well. I mean, Margaret Atwood, for instance. Will, I mean, who I love. I mean, she's my favourite living author. But, you know, she will insist that things like The Handmaid's Tale and Oryx and Crake aren't science fiction because she's a serious writer who doesn't write science fiction. What does she class them as then? Fiction. Right. And, but no, I mean, that Oryx and Crake and The Handmaid's Tale are clearly science fiction. They slot beautifully into the genre. Yeah. And, and, if she'd said, I've written some science fiction, but I don't consider myself a science fiction author, that I would have no problem with that because most of her stuff isn't science fiction. Yeah. But 
The Handmaid's Tale and Oryx and Crake, definitely science fiction books. Just, just no question. But she won't cop to it. Okay. Well, I don't know. It's, it's weird, isn't it? People, that attitude towards... But, you know, God, mate, the thing is, that's what she's... That's what she's probably most famous for, is The Handmaid's Tale, surely. Mm. Yeah. I mean, if you if you ask anybody to if you ask anybody who's not a fan to yeah. name a, a, a Margaret Atwood novel, well, that would be me. If if anyone can name anything, it's gonna be The Handmaid's Tale. Well, that would be me. If you asked me, I'd say The Handmaid's Tale, and I'd be quite stuck after that. So <laughs> probably not she's what you'd want to hear. But. She's a very fine writer. I heartily recommend her, but she's. I, I very much disagree with her on this issue. She's got a very big chip on her shoulder about being a science fiction writer. No, that's a shame. I mean, just there's so many writers who work in it do take pride in it. So I don't know. Yeah, it's I, a, it's a thing. It's, I mean, it's this thing that we have in. I mean, I can't speak for for, for other cultures, but certainly in anglophone writing. There just is this stigma around genre. Yeah. And it's not just science fiction and fantasy. You know, I mean, people are sniffy about romance and st- and thrillers as well. You know, it's... People, yeah. are, people are sniffy about horror. I mean, Stephen King doesn't get the respect he deserves either. It's... I guess it's just a thing that we do i guess it boils down i don't know boils down to the people who review it in the papers and their tastes yeah yeah uh, do you know what i think it's actually more than that i think it's 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 the fear of ridicule it's 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 the fear of being called a geek is what it is which i think is has largely gone away amongst regular folk but the kind of people we've got doing the reviews in the papers are still the people who probably made fun of people who liked Tolkien and yeah. Star Wars. And I mean, I, I remember when The Phantom Menace came out. Again, it was The Guardian. I, d- I don't want to pick on The Guardian necessarily because I'm sure other papers are equally as bad, but The Guardian is the one that I've read. Yeah. Um, Oh, God, I can't remember the guy's name. He does a lot of stuff for Radio 4 as well, artsy stuff. But he wrote an article about Star Wars as a phenomenon, just dismissing it out of hand. And almost everything he said in the article was wrong. You know, he, he, he clearly... Ha- it, it was the kind of article that came across like, oh, right, you've read about Star Wars, yeah. but you haven't actually seen it. Because you know there's a planet called Tatooine, but you don't want, don't know what it's like, and you know there's a thing called the Death Star, but what you've just said it does is not what happens. Wrong. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and you know the <laughs> names of the characters, but you don't know what they what they do. Yeah. And that's a lot of mainstream reporting about various things. Is they pick but, out half a dozen names that they've heard that have you know leaked into the. But how does that get past editors? Well. I mean, I mean, what, are editors, what are editors for? The Guardian's famous for its spelling mistakes, isn't it? So, the good old Grawny ad, yeah. Yeah, how does that? So I can't remember what it's called. How does that get past the editors? I don't know. It's just, uh, it's it's endlessly annoying. 
But, yeah. but anyway, we've been talking for ages and we haven't actually talked about the thing we're here to talk about. Yes. So. Do not start off? I... Uh, we've, we've been running for a while, to be honest. Okay. So, um, um, And, you know, oh, I'm, I'm uh, regular listeners to the show will know that we are not a particularly professional outfit. That's okay. Um, and I just blanked on the name of your comic. It's called Bigger it's okay. Fish. Yeah, I was going to say, it's okay. I've remembered it again. It's Bigger Fish. Yeah. I wouldn't mind, but I read it again this afternoon. Um, okay. So, Ed, you are here to talk about your comic, Bigger Fish, which is out now. Okay. It is, um, yes. Not actually in stock at Destination Venus right now, because I haven't seen you, but it will be in stock at Destination Venus, I hope, as soon as I do. Also, also available online? Yes, it's uh, Get My Comics and uh on comic house as big well. shout out to comic shows i'm a big fan of comics house they're really really good the guys over at the um awesome comics podcast always call it netflix for comics and i think that's about right yes. and that's why i first heard of it was on the awesome comics podcast they're good blokes in there they are they're great i, I, I love those guys um i haven't actually met any i, mean, I like listening to the show i haven't actually met any of them in Have person you not- Next, every time I've thought bubble, I went to their table to sort of introduce myself and say, "Well, first year, I hadn't had anything out, so I didn't say anything." And then the last two years, when there was an actual physical convention, there was just an army of people there. Mm. So, and I wasn't hundred percent sure if they, you know, at that point, I'd only had a couple of stories in various anthologies, um, so. Yeah, they're, you know. they're great guys um i've spoken I've, to Tony back and forth and on dms he i sent him a copy and he reviewed it on the show mm-hmm. uh, a few weeks back now um which was good they enjoyed it and it was surreal hearing my name being mentioned it's odd isn't it i on, um yeah i i was on the show a few years ago um when I was just getting started in the podcast game and they'd said that they'd quite like to talk to a retailer about sort of stocking self-published comics and stuff. So I, I emailed them and, and volunteered. Yeah. And uh, I've met, I think I've met Vince once and uh, I've met Tony a couple of, a few times. In fact, Tony came into the shop a couple of times because he was up in Harrogate doing stuff for his day job back in, you know, back before he worked for Nobrow. Yeah, so he wants to know Brown now, doesn't he? And so he came, he came into the show. He's a really nice guys, really, really nice guys. If uh, I heartily recommend the Awesome Comics podcast to anyone interested in, I do as well. Yeah, it's a great, it's uh, it's funny, and you know, you're bound to hear about something you wouldn't have heard of. Yeah, otherwise. absolutely. I... They've got very eclectic tastes. They're not, you know, they go out of their way to look for, you know, anything in British small press, really. Yeah. For me, the small press has always been really where it's at. That's where the interesting stuff happens. Um, it's, it's where you find the new stuff. Uh, and that's, that's you know, I, I first discovered the sort of self-publishing scene in the mid-90s, 94, I think, probably. I went to my first con then, and there was literally just a tiny little area with like half a dozen tables in it of people who were doing this crazy thing of publishing their own comics themselves. Um, I mean, it's, huge, you know. it's, it's, it's much bigger because it's much easier to do now. 
Well, yeah, it's, I mean, I have, so on Bigger Fish, I have actually, I've never met the artist, Haken. <laughs> I, met, I found him online. He mm. lives in Turkey. And I've only met, I have met Rob once, although very briefly, and I'm not sure he knew who I was. It was one of those weird things. I think we both ended up following each other online. Mm -hmm. I introduced myself to him at Thought Bubble and we had a very quick conversation. And then, you know, lots he's he's with Maldus Comics, Maldius Comics. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. So he had other people wanting to talk to him. I have met Joe, though, who's the colorist and quite a few, last two, well, twice, quite a few times. Met him twice and went out drinking with him both times the thought bubble it's a great guy they're all great guys but i say yeah just it's weird i've met joe and i've spoken to him quite a lot especially over the last year back and forth and uh but yeah <laughs> never met haken in the flesh and unless he comes to britain or i go to turkey probably never will that wouldn't have been possible even probably 20 years ago because the connection yeah. you know it's a, it's, it's, it's a weird thing about living in the future now that you yeah you can do that yeah you can you you can find enough you 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 can be here in Harrogate and you can write a thing and send it to a guy in Turkey that you met on the internet and he can draw it and you know you never need to be in the same place at the same time ever but this thing still comes together and it's it it's astonishing the difference that technology has made uh in in this whole I mean, thing if you didn't know yeah if you didn't know anyone in real life more or less you were i mean mm. i know it didn't quite work out that way but i think garth ennis knew john mccray in real life i think john mccray was already working when garth broke in mm. and then ended up working together on um on troubled souls but i don't i don't know anyone in real life that could who's like who does comic book art you know Oh, and and where would you even begin to meet them if you couldn't meet them online? Yeah, I mean, and even if you did meet them at a convention, then there's still the physical act of having to email art back and forth. And yeah, I mean, I I remember talking to Eddie Campbell, who drew From Hell, amongst other things. Oh God, twenty years ago now, easily. And he was saying that, like, when he was drawing From Hell, he was living in London. Alan Moore was living in Northampton. And there were times when Alan Moore would just put scripts in a taxi and send them to him because that was the only way to do it because it was, yeah. what you know, whenever it was, 1989 or whenever it was. And that's insane. How did you wouldn't even contemplate doing that now? No. It's yeah, just... Now it's just a few strokes of a keyboard and the document's there. Yeah, pinging around the world. It's, uh, I mean, I'm, I guess that has helped, obviously, the small press scene hugely. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I've, um, most of the stuff I've been doing for the last few years has been for Future Quake Press. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, that's very sad. I don't, um, Dave Evans, who ran Future Quake, sadly died last week. Yeah, no, I... Um... I was very, very sorry to hear that. That was because uh, he's been a, a fixture in this the, the small press scene for as long as I can remember. Yes, I mean, I've been thinking about Dave for since then because I only spoke to him 
well, emailed him back and forth about just over three weeks ago. Um, I sent him a copy of, copy of my comic. Um, so I was, uh, one of the things I liked about Dave that he was a uh, he was a straight shooter. Um, the very first thing I sent to him, I was sent two things. I sent him a, an original story mm-hmm. and a Judge Dredd story for Zajaz, and he uh, he, t- he politely turned down my original story, saying it was very unoriginal. <laughs> um, and he was right; it was. It was the standard people in space shooting each other in the head and being mutated into toxic monsters. And uh, but he quite liked the Judge Dread. He said he needed work and asked me to rewrite it, which I did. And then he accepted it. And but he 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 was very. He explained why he was turning the one story down. And with the Judge Dread, he went through. He liked you know explained what he thought was wrong with it, but said but this works and this works and this works. So and. Uh, it was very good to send stuff to and get a fair and honest appraisal. He was he was always, he was so excited about just comics. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. And he met me, I only ever met him at Thought Bubble, so that's four times I've met him. Um we probably emailed, you know, you know, I'd send something to him. I mean, he they were those guys. And there's a few other guys there, Richmond Clements and uh, Owen Watts. So the three of them, I mean, when I spoke to Dave last, because I, I sent him a couple of scripts last year, and I sort of stayed at play because one's been, one was accepted and, well, two have accepted and one's got an artist, one hasn't. And I, mean, I emailed him to say, send him a copy of my comic just to stay at play for where all the other future quote projects were mm-hmm. they said oh we've got so much stuff at the moment we still haven't got through it so obviously i said oh, that's fair enough you know inundated with work but i wanted him to have a look at my comics so he, i knew he'd give me an honest um an honest critique he he slapped my wrist for one thing um but he enjoyed it and he said oh you know i'm really he said in an email he said oh you know you've I think it was a Saturday. I sent it to him. He goes, "Oh, you've made my day. You've made my afternoon." Because um, he did enjoy it. And, I thought, and in the end, his his last email was because um, he put it on the Future Quake blog, and he tweeted out and he said, "I'll do whatever small part I can to help you." And I, you know, I said to him, you know, "I really want to thank you for all your help the last few years." Because obviously, you know, I've loved, you know, with we love to continue submitting stuff to Future Quake. I think they're an important part of the um, British small press scene. Um, absolutely. Yeah, they are. You know, this what's happened is absolutely horrible and tragic and, you know, people need time to process it. And, um, Damn, I think Dave's a hell of a legacy he's left. So many people. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I wouldn't have it. I would if, I mean, uh, I'm not even sure I'd have 
I'd only have like maybe one story in print if it hadn't been for him because I think when I started submitting stuff it was right at the moment that a lot of the then current fanzines were shutting down yeah or not taking submissions and then subsequently shut down um but future didn't always future quake wasn't always open they always had czar jazz and dog breath open so um i think i've had five printed through them and yeah if you hadn't if it hadn't been for dave i'm not sure yeah mm. I'll continue on. It's it's nice to... I always knew I'd have somewhere to send stuff. Yeah. And get looked at. It's a big thing because, you know, otherwise you just sat in your room on your own thinking, well, do I know if it's any good or not? And he he rejected one or two of my stories. So when he did, I looked through afterwards and I thought, yeah, he was bang on. I sent him one story. I thought I was really pleased with it. He sent me... he uh, he sent me an email back and he listed he rejected it and he listed all the things that was wrong. And the moment he'd listed it and I could read it, I thought he's absolutely right. I'd I'd gone way overboard trying to be clever and mm. to the point where the story made absolutely no sense to me. Um, so that's one thing I you know he was always gave you an honest opinion Dave but he was always so excited about comics and just absolutely gutted what's happened I just yeah you know, horrible for all this I mean I, and I, close friends. I mean I can't say you know I knew him but not as well as lots of other people do and it's just yeah no I mean I I didn't know him at all really I mean I, I'd met him a few times but you know, only in the the context of I was a punter and he was behind the table at the Future Quake table at a con. But it was always so obvious that he just loved what he was doing. He loved the stories, yeah, and he loved he loved the comics and his passion for getting those stories out there was you know palpable it was electric and i don't know i I think i first came across future quake and dog breath probably at bristol um so that would have been what 99 2000 something like that yeah and they were just brilliant because they did what the industry, the industry, the medium needed, which was here's a place that's not quite self-published. It's sort of self-published, but not quite self-published. No, it is is in a way. That that regular, regular people can try stuff out and get an honest editorial opinion about what they're good at what they what they do well and what they don't do well and where they need to improve and i I worry a little bit that we're losing that now because 
one of because as you say, Dave would say, "Look, oh, thank you for sending me this. It's not great. It's not that. It's not as original as you think it is. Here's what's wrong with it." And I think, and I'm speaking as an unsuccessful writer at this point. Um, we need that because it's perfectly possible now with the technology that we've got to just put it out there, make it a webcomic. Yes. Just do it yourself and make it a vanity project and don't listen to anybody and just have your genius message just sent out. There. And we all need to be protected from that. We need to be saved from ourselves. We need people like Dave to say, yeah, bits of this are all right, but you're not as good as you think you are. We need yeah. we need an editor, and Dave was that for so many people. I mean, I my hand up. I submitted three stories to Zarjaz, and they were all rejected, and rightly so because they were awful. And I I very much appreciated that the feedback I got was honest and didn't pull any punches but also wasn't brutal you know it wasn't yeah. it wasn't you've got no talent just go away it was i can see what you're trying to do here yes but you haven't done it and this is why and he was brilliant at that and he he did that well this this the the story he rejected of mine, the, one of the two stories he rejected, and he did say, you know, at the end of it, of his critique was, there's an idea for a better story in this. Yeah. Maybe you should do that story. And I got distracted and didn't, sadly, and when I really should have. But, and I said to him, okay. I guess, you know, I've tried to put this one comment together has been you know, an eye-opening experience. And he put together five or six comics a year, you know, one episode of Issue of Future Quake, Issue of Something Wicked, and then you know, maybe three issues of Dog Breath, three issues of Zar Jazz a year. And God, you know, that's a lot of writers, artists. And he did most of the lettering as well. Mm. Yeah. He put he put a lot of work and a lot of time and a lot of thought on top of his full-time on top of his full-time job. Yeah. I said to him and said, you know, I don't I have to tip my hat to you. I don't know how you how you do it. It's just it's but look truly lost uh, the driving force of yeah, I, I, I think so. And, you know, I mean, I think it's fair to say whenever we lose somebody in the comic scene, most people haven't heard of them. Because people are, people in comics are not, generally speaking, household names. But I think even people in comics maybe hadn't heard of him as as much as they should have. I, I think um, it's what areas do. I mean, I think pretty much all of the guys who've, 
who worked for 2000 AD would have known who he was. Oh, for sure, for sure. Uh, just, uh, what's the word? It's, uh, I think it was the comic, British comic scene is so small, isn't it? In in the grand scheme of things, this you can. Um, If you don't know someone directly, you're guaranteed some, you're only like one or two people removed from them in people you know. You know, you might have a, you might not know them, but you'll probably have a mutual friend or acquaintance. And it's, uh, yeah, I've lost my train of thought just because I just keep thinking it's just, it's been, it's so sad. No, it's, 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 it's been a, a big piece of news to take in. Actually, um, I, 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 I didn't know him, and I, I, I knew of him. I, I didn't know he'd been ill, or that there was any issue at all, really. I don't think anyone did. And so, you know, then you know, there was the announcement that he he'd gone, and you know, I. I do. I mean, I do owe him a massive debt of gratitude. It's if it was, if it wasn't for him, I can't say I wouldn't be writing. But certainly, his encouragement and opportunity. When he sent me that email back, saying that he was accepting that story, honestly, was such a thrill. It was the feeling was immense. I was so buzzing, and I, and, I, I, so, I and so many people. And he's done that for so many people. So I hope there's some sort of uh, tribute or something to him at Thought Bubble or maybe Lawless or something like that. Cause I would hope so. I would hope so. Mission for helping so many people out. Yeah, absolute legend. What a legend. Yeah. No, he was, he was absolutely great. Like he'd done a, he did an awful lot for an awful lot of people. Yeah. I think that the, the UK comic scene would would have been poorer had he not been in it. Oh, and, it sure. and it will be poorer because he isn't anymore. For sure, yeah. Left a big pair of a big pair of shoes to fill, should anyone yeah. lose to follow in them. But hopefully someone well hopefully, you know, it's you know, it's inspired a lot of people to uh make comics and um hopefully that will continue on. I mean I will con- you know I will always have Dave as, you know, he'll be my guiding light, there in spirit, I like to think. Genuinely, that's a hell of a legacy. It is, yes. You know, he's 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 touched an awful lot of lives in a very positive way. It's, it's been quite been quite the thing to see online, really. It's uh, cause obviously there's people who've known him a lot longer and a lot better than I do. So it's a lot of people, you know, it's been 20 years. I think it's over that. I think it's ready, you know, he'd been... He's worked some. You know, some people know him longer than that since he worked in a comic shop. I think in an Odyssey Seven. I think he worked at in the early nineties. So long time, long time ago. Yeah. So yeah. Okay. And so yes, I had. So I had sent Dave a copy of Bigger Fish, and uh, he reviewed it. And I so I've been I've been sending it out into the world now to for other people to offer their opinions on it.
I will leave that there and pick it back up next week. That seems a, a reasonably sensible place to finish uh, for now. So, onwards and onwards. Uh, it's time for our Comics of the Week. There, there are actually quite a lot of very, very good new comics out this week, but uh, I'm going to focus on just two. The first is a fantastic, but quite dark. Uh, I'm, I'm not quite sure how to classify it in terms of genre. I'm going to say sort of horror story, but it's not really horror. Um, called Silver City. Um, it's from Aftershock, who are one of the best publishers out there. Um, and we start with a catastrophe in which a huge number of people are killed. Not a spoiler, it's on page one. And you know what? Getting killed in a massive tragedy is a terrible thing to happen to anyone. You might think that's perhaps the worst thing that can happen to everyone, and that after that, any problem you're going to have is going to seem a little bit mild. Nah. For a young woman called Daru, dying in a massive tragedy is just the start of her problems. She finds herself in the Silver City. The Silver City is where you go when you die. The Silver City is the afterlife, and trust me, it is not heaven. It is a dark, a grim, a gritty sort of place. Think New York in the 1970s, only taller and full of dead people. It's a very difficult place to live. Well, not live, obviously. It's a very difficult place to exist. It can be violent. It's ruled by... Well, actually, I won't tell you that, because that's part of the thing. And if that's not bad enough, she's separated from her friend, who is killed in the same tragedy as she is. And as she's trying to find her feet and orientate herself, um, she finds herself intervening to rescue a little girl that she'd seen just before the tragedy that killed both of them um she seems to be she's in some trouble i'm not going to tell you what the trouble is this little girl uh so rue intervenes to help her and in doing so she discovers something about herself and that discovery is, which is the big reveal at the end of issue one is the trigger for a series of events that will change the supposedly unchanging Silver City, forever. There's some astonishing world-building here. Uh, yeah, stories set in the afterlife are not particularly unusual. Uh, this is an afterlife I have not previously seen. It's a, ver it's a view of, of what goes on uh, that isn't really rooted in any of the religions. It's, it's much more urban and industrial than, than anything else I've seen. And uh, the characters that are drawn to inhabit this world all feel real. I know people like these people. Which is, again, that's a powerful thing. Um, it's, it's, it's a very, very good piece of writing. Uh, the art 
uh, sorry, the writing, I should say, is by a woman called Olivia Coadero-Briggs, um, who's, if I've come across her work before, I have not recalled her name. Um, and the art, I, I'm not familiar with the artist either, it's provided by somebody called uh, Luca Merli, and it fits the tone of the book absolutely perfectly. It's it's great. It 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 catches the atmosphere just right, which is something that I love. Uh, so issue one out now as you listen to this, um, and uh, I can't recommend it highly enough. It, it's just it's just brilliant. As is another uh, comic that is out this week. A uh, different publisher. It's from Image, who are much more established as. Uh, a public publisher of independent and creator-owned work. Um, and it's called Time Before Time. Now, time travel stories are not all that unusual either. Um, I can think of many. Dystopian sci-fi stories, equally. Not just ten a penny, but there are times when I think if you're going to tell a time travel story, there must be some kind of law that says it has to have a dystopian element. Um... This is still, though, although it's playing with very familiar tropes, it is still an original take, or at least it's original to me. I've not seen this sort of take before. Um, the premise is this. It's 2140, and it's a horrible time to be alive. So people are finding ways out. One way out is to do a deal with a criminal organisation called The Syndicate. And yes, on this point I'm with you, that's a criminal organisation that didn't put too much thought into what it was calling itself. But then, if you were a criminal organisation, why would you? Um, now, what The Syndicate will do is take you back in time to a point in history where you can live a better life than you can have in 2140. They also do smuggling, you know, bringing decent chocolate from the 1970s forward in time and, you know, all that kind of thing. Now, the problem with this is that you can't make repeated trips. So it's quite dangerous work if you're one of the guys who does the ferrying people about. If you're just a customer, you're only going to make the trip once. So it doesn't really matter. It's like, you know, one x-ray won't hurt you. But if you're the guys who make repeated trips because you are piloting the little time machine jobs um, to take people to the past and come back, you're exposed to whatever it is that's damaging a lot. And it has long-term effects. Friends Tatsuo and Oscar have been at this job for a long time and they can't just quit. They owe money to the syndicate and making these trips, ferrying people back to the past and smuggling things to the future and stuff like that. That's how they pay their debt. And it's becoming clear that they're never paying it off. And there's an element of realism to this. That's how criminal gangs actually operate in the real world. So they decide they're getting out. And the way they decide they're getting out is they're going to steal one of the time machines and go and live somewhere in the past where hopefully the syndicate won't be able to find them.
not sounding the spoiler horn for this, but spoilers doesn't quite work out for them. I'm not going to tell you how, and what I am going to tell you is that it doesn't work out for them in a different way than the way you're probably thinking it doesn't work out. It's a great, just, just like Silver City, the world building here is completely solid. It's really skillfully built. It's written by uh, Declan Chalvey and Rory McConville. Uh, McConville, I think, is relatively new to sort of big publishing comics. Uh, I know he's done some creator own stuff. I think he's done some work in 2000 AD as well. Uh, Chalvey um, is very established uh, as a writer. Um, uh, and an artist. I mean, uh, Shalvey is uh, responsible for the cover of Time Before Time. The art here, though, is provided by Joe Palmer and Chris O'Halloran, uh, who I think is... Yeah, I'm not quite sure who does what, actually, so I won't say. Again, as with Silver City, the art beautifully complements the script. It's quite a... It's got a sort of pulp, noirish feel to it, the script. Uh, it's very definitely a crime comic. It's very definitely a kind of heist-style comic. Um, and it it deals with the concept of what you'll do when your situation becomes unbearable. Um, you know, there's a very good Wi-Fi gag quite near the beginning as well, which is, you know, there's, there's some humour to this. So, as with Silver City, I would really commend this to you. It's just a great thought-provoking read. I mean, dystopian futures are popular for a reason. Uh, our future is looking pretty jolly dystopian from where I'm standing. And yeah, maybe it would be fun to go back and live in the 80s again as an old person. Could be quite cool. So Give this one a read. And uh, here endeth our comics of the week. Okay, so moving on. Uh, I hope you like the jingle, by the way. I can't remember if I've used that jingle before, but I like it, and it's the one I'm going to keep using. Um, and speaking of jingles, here's another one. Yes, it's time for the science news, and uh, there's some interesting stuff this week. I am obviously going to do what I always do and focus on space, because one of my very favourite space probes is back in the news. Voyager 1 is old now. I mean, Voyager 1 is from the 70s, uh, launched in 1977, in fact, when I was probably five, actually, when she launched. Um, launched... On actually pretty short notice, because somebody at NASA noticed that all the planets were going to line up so that you could, if you could just shoot something in, a, in what passes for a straight line in space, at least, um, you could hit all of the major planets on your way out of the solar system, which is what both Voyager 1 and Voyager 2 were designed to do. Um, now, Voyager 1 has been leaving the solar system for some time. 
Um, exactly when Voyager 1 left the solar system depends on how you define the edge of the solar system, but she's definitely over it now. Um, and still sending back data, which is astonishing for a craft this old. Um, she's now well outside. She, she, she passed out of the, the, the real influence of the sun uh, in August 2012. Uh, so she's been in interstellar space for, what, eight, nine years? Something like that. And you'd expect there wouldn't be very much to report because space is sort of, by definition, kind of empty. At least that's what you'd think. You'd also think it was pretty quiet. It's, in fact, neither of those things. Um, it is said often that nature abhors a vacuum, and that is equally true in space. Space is not a true vacuum. Uh, there is gas out there. It's just there's not very much of it. It's as good as a vacuum as you could need to be. But there are still molecules of gas floating around in interstellar space. And it turns out they make a noise. Um, Voyager 1's plasma wave system um, has detected uh, what they're s sort of referring to as the interstellar hum. Um, rather poetically, um, the George Falstein Professor of Astronomy, uh, James Cords, has said that it's like a, the interstellar medium is like a quiet or gentle rain. And there's the possibility... They, well, they have detected a very low-level hum caused by this interstellar gas uh, sort of moving and oscillating. Uh, and that's just mind-blowing to me. I mean, I was certainly taught when I was a kid that there was no sound in space. But it turns out there is a bit, if you listen carefully with some very finely tuned instrumentation. Um, there's a link to the article that I based this little segment on uh, in the show notes. I'm not going to go into too much depth here because I am not a physicist and I will probably mess it up. Uh, but do go and check it out. Uh, info at destinationvenus.co.uk. Click on the blog and look for Geeking Episode 4. And um, I was going to do another couple of science articles, but we are running very much out of time. So we will move on. And in fact, we will wrap it up here. Uh, we're very close to the hour. Uh, lots more to come uh, next week. Uh, more of our interview with Ed and uh, hopefully some other little treats as well, if I can get them organised. Um, quick little bit of blatant self-promotion. Destination Venus reopens on Monday the 17th, which is next Monday, if you're listening to this, uh, when it first drops. And... Um, yeah, I, uh, I hope to see some of you there. Uh, I would be uh, thrilled to see your happy, smiling faces once again. It's been a while, ladies and gentlemen. Um, so that's it for this week. We'll be back next week. Until then, be kind to yourselves. Be extra kind to everybody else. Stay safe. Stay geeky. Until the next time, we join together to go geeking. Goodbye.